All right. Well, good morning, Friends Church. Good morning. Good morning. It feels like I'm at home. All, everybody's ignoring me when I say hello. It's all good. I'm a dad. I understand. Hey, well, it's good to be with you guys this morning as you're making your way back to your seats. Uh, if you're new here at Friends Church, like Chancellor said, let me just be another one to welcome you. We're glad that you're here in worship today, and we do believe that uh, you being here, whether this is your home church or whether you're just visiting today, uh, that there is no coincidence that the Lord would have something to speak and to impart to your life, uh, whether that's through the fellowship, whether it's through the worship, or whether it's through our time in His Word. Uh, we're glad that you're here, and we believe that He has something powerful for your life today. Uh, but as we get ready to transition into a time of God's Word, uh, today is, well really I guess this weekend is a, is a special time for our country. It's a time where we set aside an opportunity uh, to honor people in our country who have decided to sacrifice something on our behalf for all of us. And so we celebrate this weekend here at French Church that it is Veterans Day. And so we appreciate uh, the many veterans in our congregation. And so we just want to take a second, and if you are a veteran, past, present, uh, that you would just stand and let us honor you and, uh, and appreciate your service today. So just go ahead and stand at this time, and let's just thank you. And so uh, for, for you all who stood, every year we love to do this, but after service, before we head over to baptisms, uh, if we can have all of our veterans gather out front, and we just love to get a group picture. We have the one from last year, uh, which is always so significant because uh, it's special to see. In there we have our youngest veteran uh, who's uh, in the Marines right now, but it's Marco. And so you have 18-year-old Marco, and then we have our two oldest veterans, Carl and Lloyd, who are 94 and 95. And so it's just fun to see uh, the diversity in the congregation of all those men and women who have sacrificed. And so we appreciate you all. And so we pray that today that, that you would feel honored by our church and also by our country as a whole. So thank you to you guys. Uh, and then the last thing before we go to the Lord's Word this morning is uh, a side note on something that you're going to be noticing over the next couple weeks. Uh, and that is uh, through the Lord's blessing and through the generosity of many people in our congregation, uh, we now have the opportunity... Thank you, Noah. We now have the opportunity to make some much-needed improvements to uh, the lighting and the visuals here in our sanctuary. And so we have an amazingly beautiful sanctuary, and we love it. And yet, all of our lights and visuals and all of these things are quite antiquated. And so the Lord has moved in some people's hearts, stirred them up to generosity, and they have blessed us with funds specifically to make some much-needed improvements uh, to everything behind me. And so the reason I bring that up to you is for two reasons. Uh, number one, we need your help. And so next Sunday, in a correction to Chancellor's announcement, next Sunday is not the volunteer training. That's actually on the 24th. Uh, next Sunday is an opportunity, uh, if you have time to help us, get the stage ready to get a little bit of a facelift, a little update. And so if you want to stick around and help us with that, uh, we have plenty of ways to use you no matter your <laughs> level of ability. And so we're going to do that next Sunday. But I also bring it up because if being raised in the church and spending enough time in church settings has taught me anything, is that sometimes we have 
uh, a trouble or we have a problem with change as God's people. And so I'm just putting it out there now in anticipation of the changes you're going to see over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, pardon the dust while we make those improvements. Bear with us. But I pray and my hope is that you would be excited about some of the modifications that we get to make to our sanctuary. And so I appreciate Jared and his effort in pioneering all of this. He is the brains behind everything uh, because I just see lights and cables and I know nothing about any of that. But Jared's the brains behind it all. And so all that to say, bear with us while we change a little bit. And so if you want to help us in that process, you are more than welcome to. All right, and now uh, let's get down to God's Word. Would you guys pray with me as we jump into it this morning? Lord Jesus, we love you. We gather together this morning as your people, uh, excited to hear from you. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful for all the ways that you have provided, that you have met our needs, both individually, but as families, and especially corporately as a community. You have been so faithful to us. And so we just come to you in this time with hearts of gratitude. And we pray, Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word, uh, that we would come to it humbly, Lord, that we would come in submission to your teachings, and that you would speak to us through the presence and the reality of your spirit with us, and that you would lead us and guide us and change us, that we might become righteous as you are, and that we might become more as you are. And so, Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And it's in your holy name that we pray these things. And all God's people say, amen. Well, if you have scripture, pull it out. And let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't know where that is, borrow the Bible ahead of you in the pew back and then flip pretty much to the very end. And that's where you're going to find 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 4. Now, uh, this may come as a surprise to those of you who know me. If you're a visitor, maybe not. But if you know me, uh, it might be a surprise to you that I was not always the perfect husband that I am in my current state, right? My, my wife Taylor is home with one of our sick kiddos, so I feel completely at liberty to make all these bold claims for myself. Uh, but I would argue that, and maybe you would argue against me, uh, that I'm a pretty good husband. My wife's not here, so I'm going to, again, make that claim for myself. But I remember Taylor and I, in fact, are this Wednesday celebrating uh, nine years of marriage, and so that's a testimony to her and her grace with me in this process, and yet I remember the first year of our marriage, and if you've been married or you're married right now, you might remember that uh, the first year is oftentimes a year of great growing pains uh, as you learn what it means to live together with somebody, to do life together with somebody. And I'm seeing a lot of chuckles in the congregation today. My married couples know what I'm talking about. And so you go from this, and for me, the hardest part, and honestly, in Taylor and I's marriage these last nine years, we've been through many things together. And yet the hardest season for us was the first six months to, to about the first year. And really, as I look back on that time, the issue was that I was having a hard time adapting as a husband from being a single guy who has known nothing in his entire life except how to make myself the highest priority. And all of a sudden, you step into marriage, and you have to learn really quickly how to make another person the highest priority, how to put their needs, their wants, their desires ahead of your own in all of your decision-making. And to be honest, as I look back on that first year of our marriage, the thing that caused the most problem for Taylor and I was that I struggled 
to make that transition. And I wanted to keep living with myself at the center of my little universe and somehow bring my wife into that in the periphery, that I would still remain the most important thing and that she would somehow just kind of adapt to that and fit into that picture. And every wife and every woman in this room is dying on the inside because you know how foolish of an endeavor that really is. And some wives are hugging their husbands in grace right now. Good for you. And yet that's the lesson that I learned. And so as we turn our attention to Scripture this morning, as we continue in our series that we're calling The Good Life, what we're looking at today is the aspect of the good life of service and how we believe as followers of Jesus that the gospel would advocate that the best life that you and I can live is a life of service. And in order for us to live that good life in the kingdom, that life of service you and I have got to learn how to remove ourselves from the center of our own universe. And until you and I figure out that we can't remain there and we ought not remain there, we're going to continue to live frustrated lives. Frustrated lives because when you and I are the center of our universe, everything exists to answer and to satisfy my needs, my desires, and my wants. And the reality is, is when I live my life with that end in mind, I will always live a life of frustration and dissatisfaction because my needs and my wants will never fully be met if I keep myself and you keep yourself as the highest priority. And so we believe that Scripture calls us as God's people to move away from that. And so that's why we turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 4. Join me in verse 7 as I read for us. And this is what Scripture says. It says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we love you. And Lord Jesus, as we prayed already, and I pray that our hearts would be oriented in this posture, we come before you now, and we want to sit in submission. Lord, it's so difficult for us to do what the gospel calls us to do, to remove ourselves from the center. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would stretch us, that you would move us, that we would take ourselves out of that, that it wouldn't be about our ambitions, our desires, our dreams, our wants but that we would put the needs of others first as you yourself have done. And that as we do that, that we would experience, each of us individually and as a community at Friends Church, that we would experience the amazingly good life of the kingdom, a life of service as you have, Lord Jesus. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, before we continue, I got to apologize. I'm losing my voice, and so I don't always sound so raspy. So hang in there with me, and hopefully I make it through the end of the sermon. But... As we looked at last week, 
We looked at, as Jared mentioned, we looked at the idea of generosity, that the kingdom life, the good life of the kingdom is a life of generosity. And we talked about how there is a competing gospel that you and I have the option to submit our lives to. And that is what we're going to keep looking at over these next couple weeks is what we'll call the, the gospel of our culture or the American gospel. And the American gospel that we looked at last week is one that is directly tied to the American dream. That in order to get what I want, I need to use my wealth to secure for me my provision and my security and my pleasures. And we talked about the idea that in the gospel of Jesus that really God alone provides those things. And that because he does, we can be moved to be people of generosity. And now this week, we look at the idea of service and how there is an American gospel. And there is an American gospel of self. And the American gospel of self would tell you and I that in order for you to live fully satisfied, you have to keep yourself as the highest priority. That if you're going to get what's yours, you have to keep yourself as number one. Because if you don't, no one else will. And if no one else does then you'll never get what you need. And so we grow up in this culture, and it's a great culture, right? We celebrate our holidays. We celebrate Veterans Day. We honor the good things about what it means to be a Christian in America, but we also live with eyes wide open about the ways in which our culture is speaking against the reality of our kingdom. And one of those ways is that our culture would tell us and convince us that you need to be the center of your world and that I need to be the center of my world. And then we encounter the gospel of Jesus. And it invites you and I to make a decision, to trust Jesus when he says that if we are bold and daring, if we take ourselves out of the middle and if we put other people in the middle and we put ourselves last, that when we get that right, we will experience the blessed life that we're desperately so hungry for. But first, you and I have got to make the decision to reject the American gospel of self. And so as we look at Scripture this morning, we're going to look at three passages. Now, the one we read is actually the last we're going to look at. But the one we're going to begin with is in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have Scripture... Again, let's flip there. Philippians chapter 2. If you're new to Scripture, don't worry. Like every good book, the Bible has a table of contents. So I would invite you to use that. It's at the very beginning, and we're in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And here's why we're starting our time here. So the book of Philippians is actually a letter written to a church a long time ago. And as you read the letter, one of the things that becomes glaringly obvious in it is that this guy Paul is writing it to the church and he's addressing and diagnosing a problem within it because our church is no different than every church that's gone before it. We got issues and we got some problems. And so Paul's writing the letter. And what we infer from the context of it is that he's pleading with this church to move forward together, right? He keeps talking about unity all the time in this really short letter. And he's imploring them to move forward together in unity. And one of the things that you draw out from this is it answers the question, why aren't they united? Like, what's the issue? What can't they seem to get right and get together about? 
And what we look at in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, is we find this. They're not together, they're not united, because every one of them is looking out for their own interests. And Paul's making it clear. You can't move forward with the gospel. You can't move forward for the kingdom as a church if each person in the church is only still looking out for number one. And so we look at Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, and this is what he says. This is his encouragement. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Right? And we could probably spend a lifetime just trying to get that one verse down. And he says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so when you break that down, here's what you look at. The very first part is the very first step, is that prescription where he says, in humility. Right now, humility is is closely related to the word humiliation or to be humiliated. Now, a lot of us know the one form of that, right? Humiliation is oftentimes external. It's when you are humiliated. When, When people make you feel that way. Maybe for a mistake you've made or keep making, for an accident, a choice that you've made in life. We all know what it feels like to be humiliated from the outside. And yet what Paul's talking about here is this first part is in humility, not talking about when others humiliate you, but the conscious decision that you and I make to humble ourselves, to lower ourselves. And this, honestly, is the very first point, and yet it's the, it's the door that so many of us choose to never walk through. And so we don't even get to the rest of the sermon because you and I, somewhere along the road, make a decision that we're just not going to walk through the door number one, which is, I've got to make a decision, you've got to make a decision to humble yourself. Not humiliate yourself, right? But to lower yourself, to humble yourself. Because until I humble myself... I can't put somebody ahead of myself. To humble means I take myself down from that number one spot. And until I'm willing to do that, right? Because nobody's going to do that for me. They can humiliate me, but they can never humble me. That's only something that I can do. And I've got to make the decision, and you've got to make the decision first to humble ourselves, to bring ourselves down so that we can be able to put others ahead. And the second part is this, to humble yourselves and then to value others. And that's why that's door number one. Because the gospel would tell me I can't value you fully if I'm valuing myself ahead of you. And I want you to think about that. If you're married, I want you to think about that in the context of your marriage. If you're a son or a daughter in relation with your family, if you're a brother or a sister... You cannot and will never be able to fully value the people you love most if you can't humble yourself. Because as long as you're number one, you will never be able to value them more than you value your own needs and your own wants. And the American gospel of self would implore you to stay in that place. And yet the gospel of Jesus invites us to humble ourselves so that we can fully value the others around us. And the last part of that verse is this, and then how do you value people? How do you know when you've gotten there? 
And Paul makes it clear that you're able to look out for the interest of others. And if you were able to do that, if I was able to do that, I would probably be a way better husband than I imagined myself to be. Because I would be able to think about my wife. I'd be able to think about what she needs ahead of my own needs, ahead of my own interests. I'd be able to put my kids first ahead of my own. Why? Because I've humbled myself. I've taken myself out of that number one spot. I've learned by doing that that I can then value other people fully. And then all of a sudden, I'm free to put their interests ahead of my own. And yet none of those things will ever happen unless I humble myself, unless you humble yourself and step outside of that American gospel of self that would beg and plead and implore you at every single turn to keep yourself in the middle, to serve yourself first. And then if you've got anything left after that, then you can look to the interest of others. And the problem is that the American gospel of self has bred for us families with parents who are so selfish. Brothers and sisters, cousins and family members who can only think about themselves. People who go out into our culture, and, and you and I are no different. We can't blame culture, but we begin to go out and think about the primary goal for me is to get mine, and then if I've got extra space, I'll worry about something else, or I'll worry about somebody else. And we see the effects in a culture that adheres to the American gospel of self. It's a culture that cannot see beyond their own desires. And man, my prayer for our church is that we would be a people who take seriously what Jesus invites us and calls us to. That like he has modeled for us, we would remove ourselves from the middle, be free to fully value other people, and then, then be opened up to take their interests ahead of our own. That we might adhere to the good life of service in that way. Let's look at another passage. Let's look at the way that Jesus has modeled this. Go to John chapter 13, right? If you're new to Scripture, just go back a couple books and you'll find the Gospel of John. And we're in John chapter 13, and it's a really famous passage, and I'll read a few verses in just a second. But one of the amazing byproducts of being a parent or a grandparent or just being around kids in general is that you can almost pretty quickly uh, earn a medical degree by all the diagnosing of symptoms that you have to do with, as a parent. Right? And my kids have practically earned for me already, by the ages of six, my own medical degree. And in particular, my son Camden. Right? Uh, I have diagnosed him. He has a very rare medical condition uh, where every night at dinner time, he has this digestive issue where he cannot physically eat the food that I have prepared for him. It's the craziest thing. And as I talk to other parents, I find out it might not be such a rare medical condition, right? But here's the thing. It's this weird disease where if you put a bowl of cookies in front of him, it's like, man, it's a miracle he's healed. But chicken and rice is like, no, it's poison. And I see this every night. 
And I'm part doctor and part lawyer because I'm arguing the case about why he needs to eat dinner. And so here's the deal. I've learned to diagnose symptoms as a dad. And maybe you have picked up that handy skill as well. But I know as a dad when there's a real symptom and when there's a six o'clock digestive issue symptom. And when I look at the church, oftentimes you and I are sad to say just like six-year-olds where we come up with these excuses and when we think about doing what Jesus calls us to right here, here's a symptom that you and I magically find at the six o'clock hour when it comes time for you and I to serve others. I don't have time. I don't have time. I want to. Don't get me wrong, Dad. I want to eat dinner. It looks delicious. Thank you. But I, I just, I can't. I don't have time. And yet here's the thing. We don't have a time problem. We have a priorities problem. Because I guarantee you, if we were to have that bowl of cookies in front of us, we would find time. If I had something put in front of me that satisfied what I actually wanted, I'd make time. I do make time. I saw a commercial the other day that said the average American watches four hours of streaming a day, right? And I look at that, I'm like, there's no way. And then I sit there and I think about it, I'm like, man, I'm an above average American. Because <laughs> I can tear through six seasons of Lost with my wife in like two and a half weeks. I'm above average, baby. And I look at that, and here's what I find, is that if you put a bowl full of cookies in front of me, I'm healed. I will find time for what I want. And my gut tells me that you and I together form the average American. That when pressed, we might say, no, I don't have time. But when we look at our lives, we don't have a time problem. We've got a priorities problem. Because if I were to present to you that thing that satisfies your actual want or desire, you would find time. But when we think about Jesus' call to be people who serve others, all of a sudden it's like, nah, I, we come up with a dinnertime tummy excuse. I don't have time. And then we look at this example, and here's why we're in John chapter 13. Let's read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll... The end, verses 12 through 17. Check this out. It says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Now Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Go down to verse 12. Now when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand 
what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than their master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And there's so much that comes out of this this narrative, right? This is a beautiful image and passage that Jesus shows us so many theological truths. And there's one thing that I would draw out of it for you and I this morning. And it's this, I want you to think about this. To think about and to imagine what Jesus is doing. Jesus, who we profess and preach <coughs> as the Lord of all creation, fully God and fully man, he is literally at that moment holding all creation together in his hands. And yet at that same time, he's able to lower himself (coughs) and wash the feet of his 12 disciples. I'm so sorry. (coughs) At the same time as he's doing all these things, three guys just got up to go get me a cup of water. (laughs) I'm good, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you, brothers. At the same time he's holding the world together, Jesus takes time to get down and to wash the feet of his 12 disciples. What do you think Jesus got out of that? Did he get any benefit from washing their feet? In that culture, to wash people's feet was reserved for the role of a house servant. Did Jesus get anything by doing this? And then we got to ask ourselves, Why? If the Lord of all creation can do this, if he, in the midst of all that he's doing, can pause and take time to wash the feet of his disciples, if he can find time, what's my excuse? If he can find time to serve his disciples in that way, thanks, Wayne. What a guy. Everybody, let's give it up for Wayne. Thanks, guy. I've preached here for three years, and I've never had a cup of water up on stage, so sorry about that. If Jesus can find time to wash the feet of his disciples, if he can make that a priority, what message is he trying to communicate to me? The average American, the above above average American who crushes that four-hour goal. If he can find time to wash the feet of his disciples, to serve them in that way, what is he trying to speak to me and you? How can you make time by lowering yourself, by valuing others and seeking their own interests ahead of your own? How can you find time and ways to serve other people? And I'm challenged by that. I don't have a time problem, clearly. My Hulu and Netflix accounts will tell me I do not have a time problem. Well, I do have a time problem. That's the way I spend it. But I also have a priorities problem. I want my bowl of cookies. I want the thing 
that satisfies my need, that satisfies my want. And I will make time for those things. I do it every day, and I guarantee you, if you look at your time too, you make time for those things as well. And the gospel of Jesus would beg us to consider that the blessed life is not a life of seeking our own. Look at verse 17 again. Look what Jesus says. Now that you know these things, you will be what? Blessed if you do them. The American gospel of self is also seeking a blessed life, is it not? It seeks it by putting myself at the top and saying, get what's yours, chase what you want above all else. And then if by some miracle you get it, which i.e., spoiler alert, you won't, then you'll have the blessed life. And then Jesus comes in quietly, the Lord of all creation, and in the midst of washing 12 people's feet, a complete waste of his time, the, the work reserved for a house servant, then he says, hey, you go and do this very same thing. He's not talking about necessarily washing feet, but he's talking about looking to the interests of others, to humble yourself and do something to serve other people. And then he speaks against the gospel of the American culture, and he says this, if you do these things, you will be blessed. You will find that life that your soul is craving. Your soul wants a blessed life. It's just looking for it in all the wrong places. It's looking for it with you at the center. And Jesus is inviting us to remove ourselves, to put others first as he has done that we might truly experience the blessed life. Let's look at our last passage this morning, which is actually the first one we read. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to look at one verse in particular, and that's verse 10. Because when we think about the Scriptures, one thing that you will notice if you read the New Testament is this. You're called as God's people to serve all the time, right? That makes sense given the fact of who we follow as Lord and Savior, right? You can't call Him Lord and Teacher and then not do what He does, and He serves. And so, but in serving, when you read the New Testament, You'll notice that when Scripture often, most often, talks about serving, it's in a very specific context. And the context that is most often used when talking about service is service to the church. Think about that. And more so than serving even those outside the church, more so than even serving your own family, the New Testament talks most about serving the church. Now, it does talk about husbands and wives and how they ought to serve one another. It does talk about sons and daughters and employees and bosses, how we ought to relate and serve. And yet, more often than not, Scripture talks about how we serve the church. And so look at verse 10. This is what Peter picks up on. And he says this, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And here's what Peter's prescribing, and here's the invitation that I think God has for us this morning in the midst of all we've been talking about, is that as God's people, one of our highest callings is to serve the church. And in verse 10, Peter makes it clear, you've been given a gift, kind of as a, as a what he would call 
grace, which comes from the Greek charisma, it, it means kind of this gift. You've been given this as a follower of Jesus, and the whole purpose that you've been given this is not so you can use it to pursue your own ambitions. But you've been given a gift through the imparting of God's Spirit that then gets used to benefit the body. It gets used to benefit God's church. And there's a plan, there's a method to this, because God has designed it that when His church, when you and I get this right, when we learn how to serve each other with the gifts He's given us, a miracle happens. This community begins to reflect heaven in a way that causes it to distance and stand out from the rest of our culture, the culture that is pursuing the American gospel of self. And all of a sudden, a culture that is looking for a blessed life sees it being lived out in the church as we serve one another. And a miracle happens. They're drawn to that. And you don't don't have to argue. You don't have to try and tear down their beliefs. Because what you've done is you've modeled, you've, you've fleshed out what it means to serve one another in such a way that it creates this community that draws people in to that heavenly reality. And so here's my invitation for us, friends, church, as we, as we wrap up our time in Scripture. And I would just beg you and I would implore you along with Scripture to consider what your life could be like if you humbled yourself, if you took yourself out of the center, if you took yourself out of your own spotlight and you began to put other people there first. And here's the thing, that first step is going to be one of the hardest you ever decide to do. Why? Because you're going to find that the people you serve don't deserve it. Your spouse won't deserve it. Your family won't deserve it all the time. And here's the beautiful reality of the gospel is that you don't deserve it either. And yet Jesus still does it. And when we follow him and his example, when we move ourselves from the middle, we're going to find that the people we serve don't deserve it. Oftentimes they don't deserve it. That's not the point. The point is is that you will experience the good life of the kingdom, a life of service, when you choose to do it anyway in the example of Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is that that would start first and foremost here in the reality that he's expressed, the church. That you would serve the body. As you look around this room at all these faces, think about, man, how can I serve these people? That you might experience the blessed life, the good life of the kingdom.